What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got uh, the crew, Hunter Marston. Is that right? Yo. <laughs> Gabby Magnuson. Hey. Kiara Mitchell. Hello. And new contributor to the pod, Tejas Menon. What's up, everybody? So we've just got three or possibly four quick hits before getting into this. The first is just a quick shout out, and I've been meaning to do this for a while, but um, the editor-in-chief of the Yale Journal of International Affairs, Joe Gajewski, he's a supporter, backer, friend of the pod, and uh, the Yale Journal of International Affairs, it's a good its a good publishing outlet, uh, and it doesn't discriminate against grad student submissions, so to the extent that you're in that like Gen Z millennial category and doing writing or research that you're trying to find an outlet for there's a possibility this could be a good fit yale journal of international affairs um second quick hit from kamala harris uh or the state department maybe so the vice president kamala harris announced that the united states is going to unilaterally impose a moratorium on uh, anti-satellite weapons tests right and this is kind of like off tone from the administration's foreign policy, but it's uh, a unilateral gesture. The reasoning that's offered, I support it, obviously, shout out. The reasoning that they put forward was that they believe this is a first step that can advance a shared understanding of responsible behaviors in space, can enable risk reduction measures, increase transparency, and enhance overall stability in outer space. I feel like that all makes sense. There's a strong threat reduction logic here, like um, the peace repertoire stuff, right? There's a disarmament logic to this. It's a specific way of formulating um, statecraft and, and foreign policy so that you can stabilize things in a more durable way. And I'm all about this. And I just wanted to point out that the logic in no matter how you get to this point where you say this is this is the way to stability, which is what they do and which I agree with any logic that gets you to that point where you're doing unilateral restraint in space or on nukes is a logic that directs you toward more than just this move. You can't do this and do one point seven trillion dollars of nuclear modernization. You can't do this and arms racing at the same time, right? You can't do this and spurn arms control completely in every other respect. So I say more of this, this is a good thing. It's just, it's like logic, it's incoherent relative to like the rest of the stuff that the administration is doing in nuclear and space policy. So I don't wanna dunk on the contradictions, I want to be like, more of this stuff, please. You know, unilateral restraint for the sake of stability. I think there's something here. Hey, Van, how much of this is aimed um, in your mind at China, uh, which is notably one of those um, uh, recent testers of um, anti-satellite missile technology uh, that has uh, gained a lot of headlines and negative attention? Yeah, seemingly all of it. I mean, you could make a marginal case because like, for some a country like North Korea, they they do do missile tests under the guise of like satellite launches, you know, and so you could be trying to um, 
on the margins, encourage restraint from North Korea. You know, this Russia can do ASAT tests too. And so there's a case also to be made that this helps. This is the thing about unilateral restraint moves though. Like unless you think you're facing Hitler, right? Where it's like appeasement makes the aggressor more aggressive. Unless it's that situation, unilateral restraint only pays dividends across the board. Like it doesn't hurt anywhere unless you think you're facing one of the emboldenment situations, right? And like, I think analysts have, can disagree on that point about whether China or whether Russia is in that like emboldenment mindset, whether they'll take restraint and then somehow exploit it to our disadvantage or something. Um, so there's a debate to be had analytically there, but I don't, I'm not worried about it, you know? And we have such a large advantage and we happen to be so uniquely vulnerable in space. Like we depend on it so much compared to the other guys. So this just in, okay. I just saw this on Twitter. Hunter had shared an article. I had seen comments about this that were not so pointed yesterday, but the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command was at the Racina Dialogue, which is kind of like an elite foreign policy dialogue. It's India's version of the Shangri-La Dialogue, basically. And he gave remarks there where he pointed to NATO and specifically NATO's confrontation with Russia. And he said, I shit you not, quote, that's a pretty good model for Indo-Pacific nations who value freedom, end quote. And it's like, what the fuck are you smoking, bro? NATO is a horrendous model for Asia. Horrendous. We have uh, a ton of research in IR and Asian security, explain history too, explaining why we ended up with a system of bilateral alliances in Asia, but a multilateral mutual defense treaty uh, in Europe with NATO. And so like, this is not some cosmic mystery of the universe up for debate. Europe and Asia are wildly different circumstances with wildly different constraints. And some of that, some of the regional difference is racial, right? This is part of the archives. It's a fact. But there are a bunch of circumstantial differences too, right? The most important being that most of Asia didn't want a multilateral alliance system. And even American policymakers back in the day were wary of treating every little hotspot as worth risking World War III for. And so you bring a NATO or a NATO mentality to Asia and you turn every small country in the region into a pawn. Hundreds of millions of people become objects to be traded away in a game that really has nothing at all to do with democracy or self-determination, right? So you try to do a NATO in Asia move, you're going to end up wasting a lot of political capital on something that most countries are going to resist because you'd be trying to do this in a region where you are not the political and economic hegemon. And to the extent you actually would make progress at making this happen, you're threatening what remains of the Asian peace, Asian stability. Like, there's no need for this. We're over-securitizing everything China does, and that's where this comes from, right? That's where a comment like this comes from. And it, we have to understand that moves like this justify suspensions of democracy. They justify arms racing. They justify missile proliferation. Like, rivalry is the wrong track. And even if you think China has to be countered, right? This is not the way, bro.
So like, don't be ignorant with so much at risk. That's all I'm saying, right? NATO and Asia is bad. Bad claim, bad move, bad analysis. Um, the only thing I wanted to add, which I also put on Twitter, um, is the the rest of his quote. Um, that's Admiral, uh, is it pronounced Aquilino? I don't actually say yeah. his name often. Um, what he what he said to begin with was, if nations want to come together to provide security and prosperity, then I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And then he said, you know, what we've seen in Europe is this collective response via NATO uh, based on Russia actions. That's a pretty good model for the Indo-Pacific nations who value freedom. You know, I, I, I agree. It's a foolish statement. Um, I, I think the emphasis should have been more on the voluntary nature of collective security, right? And I, I, perhaps this was expanded upon in Q&A at the Racina Dialogues. Uh, I hope it was because, uh, as you reference here, many, many experts have already uh, weighed in heavily on why uh, a NATO model is inapplicable for Asia. It's like every five years, somebody says, why not NATO in Asia? Like, it's seriously like a recurring. Yeah. yeah and I was asked by a serious, uh, you know, a journalist at a, a major publication just a few days ago, you know, is a NATO uh, option viable for Southeast Asia? And I was really taken aback by the question because um, it just seems like those who know the region should know the history as well. You know, CETO, for instance, uh, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization was tried uh, in the Cold War and fitted after the Vietnam War. Uh, in 1977, members opted out uh, because there was very little buy-in for uh, a collective security organization absent uh, U.S. forward military presence and, and the construction of a threat uh, in, in Vietnam, in this case, um, and communist expansion, which just doesn't exist today in the same way. There's no way to unify... Uh, and I'm speaking as a Southeast Asia scholar here, but there's no way to unify Southeast Asia around the idea of a collective threat in China, for instance, uh, when uh, nearly the entire region sees China as a major economic opportunity and their largest trade partner. In other words, it's a stupid fucking idea. <laughs> but it's definitely going to be one of those things. You said it's been showing up like every five years. It's going to be one of those ideas that just keep you'll keep on seeing for the next while the thing is if your minds if you are like in the liberal internationalist mindset if you're if you think that american power is basically a public good then it, you inevitably think that a nato has to be going on in asia right it's got the veneer of like democracy versus autocracy. It's got the veneer of like sovereign equality of states. It's got the veneer of cooperation equals good because it's multilateralism, right? But that's all, it's the, the merits of those things depend very, very much on circumstances. And in Asia, the circumstances don't fit. Every region, every region has its own security logic and the logic of, of, fucking continental europe just doesn't match up with the asian experience at all so we're all going to fucking die if if they try to go forward with this is my not too hyperbolic take all right <laughs> great note to end on there <laughs> yeah. uh for the sake of time we'll skip the fourth quick hit maybe put it in another time um we can just go to the next what do you call it this next segment i keep fucking fucking it up <laughs> true or false cool so uh 
true or false headlines, right? Uh, and then the, to reiterate the the rules of the of the game, so to speak, it's um, where we create two fake headlines and add in one real headline, and you have to figure out which one the the true one is or the the real headline is. Let's do this. So for today, alrighty, really st- I tried to stump you here, so hopefully, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, alright, so for today, the first one. A faction of the Republican Party proposes changing the country's name to Gilead. Second, Egypt lifts ban on night prayers after backlash. And third, Stats New Zealand reports that academic burnout is at an all-time high. Oh, man. What was the second one again? The second one was Egypt lifts the ban on night prayers after backlash from the public. Okay, I'm going to say Egypt lifting lifting a ban on night prayers is true. Damn it. You got it. I got it. You need to do it. You need to do it. Come on, this one's for next time, Tatius. Yeah, yeah, straight up, straight up. We thought we might have got you there, but. Wait, so the New Zealand academics are not burned out at an all time high? (laughs) There is burnout, but there hasn't been an official stats New Zealand release. And there was something on burnout in the workforce earlier this year, but nothing to do with academics. So I haven't done that research. So whatever you're feeling, Van, it's not actually historic. Right. Burnout. Well, apparently it's, I'm not burned out. So burnout. Right. Perfect. Okay. I feel good. One more week of winning. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right. So I've got three tweets this week. So Sam Hasselby, he's the senior editor at Eon Magazine, and he just has this short, sweet one. He goes, if Elon Musk institutes a $50,000 annual book prize in different disciplines and genres, he will quiet 95% of the criticism. This is... Very true, actually. Most of the critics of Elon Musk on Twitter are in this like academic or academic adjacent category. They're certainly like the most vocal critics. Hopefully it's more of a mass opposition to Elon Musk. But the thing about academics that Sam is hitting on here is that we're easily bought off, generally speaking. So if you create uh, a little grant pool or a a monetary award of some kind, and you throw that at them, it's going to create fucking new theories, the Elon Musk theory of economic growth, or like the Elon Musk theory of democracy or something, right? Um, All you got to do is create whatever the institutional device is, and you will be rewarded mightily, Elon Musk. Um, It's a tragic reality of how academia is structured now. Second quick hit. No, wait quick hit second stay off twitter <laughs> tweet from um friend of the pod matt dust bernie sanders foreign policy advisor he says if you're telling me that quote we're in a global battle between democracy and authoritarianism but americans should still be able to get cheap gas end quote i'm wondering how much you actually believe the first part and this tweet went like nuts and i went nuts for this tweet in fact because this is the hypocrisy or the contradiction. There's something logically off about trying to say that, like, 
well, we need to make sure that we have affordable gas prices. We need to uh, tamp down on inflation. But at the same time, we're saying that we're in this existential struggle against the evil of non-democracies, <laughs> which is just farcical. Like if you're in an existential battle, you might have to sacrifice a little, including the price of gas, right? Um, and this, there's many ways that this could be applicable, but like it's the petro dictators thing and the climate crisis where this really comes into sharp relief because if we could force ourselves to take the bitter medicine that is a green energy transition, right? Do the tough thing. We get to a place where oligarchs like Putin don't get to wage wars. They don't have the resources for it. And that logic between fighting petro dictators and fighting the climate crisis and them being one and the same, that's obviously true, but it's, it's the essence of the contradiction. It, it highlights why there's a contradiction here, right? In this, what is basically like the, the stock liberal internationalist foreign policy approach right now, which is you try to, to mind the store of economic optimization. And that means milking fossil fuels for all they're worth, even if it perpetuates and promotes dictators. But then at the same time, you try to tell everybody, oh, actually, we need 18, $813 billion a year for the Pentagon because we're in this existential fight, right? Because democracy is at stake. And it's like, well, dude, if democracy is at stake, why can't you do what it takes? Why does it have to be with Javelin missiles, not a green energy policy? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? So... It was a great tweet. And then the final stay off Twitter tweet from Eric Van Rythoven, a scholar who does uh, security and geopolitical stuff and some work on emotions. He has a thread about realism and uh, leftist politics. And I, I get a shout out in it. So that's nice. But he says it's Friday and I should be grading. So naturally, let's do a thread on IR theory and leftist politics. He points to my piece uh, that I had in the Duck of Minerva and Inkstick Media maybe a couple weeks ago about what realists and leftists like do and don't have in common, the limits of realism for people on the left. And uh, he contrasts my piece with this piece by uh, this other guy who wrote in Jacobin, Jacobin Magazine of all places, criticizing the Western left for not supporting Ukraine, right? Eric says like, look, there are these two pieces I cannot push out of my mind this week. He says, I think that they are related. One of the themes of the last few weeks is that the response of some leftist intellectuals and leaders to the war in Ukraine is just, and then he has a vomit emoji. And he says, if you don't believe me, just look at uh, what Chomsky said about the war in Ukraine, which was not good. Uh, and then he says, if you think Chomsky and his is an exception. Look at Jeremy Corbyn, who also made not good responses about Ukraine. In both cases, and in the case of a lot of like Western leftists, the not supporting Ukraine thing is about not supporting military intervention. Um, and so they say things that sound like they're kind of anti-solidarist, like leaving Ukraine to the wolves. But that's one reading of it. What they're really talking about is opposing military support to Ukraine. 
Uh, and then the reasons for that have to do with like a larger either a class analysis, like, you know, no war, but class war, or it's B, uh, they're pacifists, right? Which is not the majority of cases, but it happens. Uh, or C, it's like some other thing, right? Like we believe that if we provide military assistance, we increase the risks of something like nuclear war. We increase the risks that we end up fighting the war, right? So there's like an analytical case and an ideological case for this. But what Eric points out, he says, in a way, Ukraine represents a problem for Western leftism because it departs from a uh, depressingly familiar script, right? U.S. exercises force abroad, blowback ensues, enter critiques of imperialism, except that the U.S. is not the belligerent power in this case, so the script doesn't quite fit, and this is a problem for leftists, so you end up reaching for ideas to make sense of the situation. Mearsheimer's offensive realism looks attractive because it casts the U.S. in a familiar role as the belligerent, right? But as Van Jackson reminds us, several of Mearsheimer's arguments conflict with leftist foreign policy, right? And so Eric says, I think there is something valuable for leftist foreign policy to be found in realism, but we need to be clear about what that is. Um, I want to suggest that it relates to realism's distinctive view on the limits of knowledge, right? Realism, and especially classical realism, is vitally concerned about the limits of knowledge. Uh, he goes into like the tragedy of great power politics and all that. Some of this I covered in, in my piece about this that he links to, but in essence, realism is kind of a negative project, right? It's like we are trapped in a kind of tragedy because we have continuing incentives to do things that could uh, fire backfire on us, that do make security uh, worse for others, right? Uh, but it's the logic of the system, and so it's it is what it is. Yes, we're trapped. Yes, what we do self-perpetuates, but we can't achieve anything any better than that. And where the left is is very much not there, right? It's trying to realize the promise of the Enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera. It's about trying to make progress toward greater peace, greater stability. And so, like, you can argue against realists or against leftists, but their view of the good and their view of what's possible is just very, very different, you know? So I, I appreciated the thread. I also appreciated the shout out. So here's a shout out back at you, Eric. Cool. So I've also got three tweets on my end for this week. Uh, the first one is from Anand Giri Hararas, an American writer, journalist, political pundit, and publisher of The Inc. So his tweet thread that I'm about to read out, I think, is well said. Um, so it goes, what Elon Musk is doing is what plutocrats have been doing, using money to buy power and power to protect their money, taking control of media to rig the discourse and hedge against resentment, and then branding themselves the solution to the very problem they are. The, it, this isn't just some corporate takeover. This is about a set of very specific moves that our oligarchs have been taking that have gradually concentrated economic, political, and discursive power in fewer and fewer hands. The moves work in concerts slowly until a day like today. If he just did his regular businesses, it wouldn't work after a while. The resentment exposure would be too high. So at some point, you need an organ to help recast yourself and your fellow plutes in the public eye. You need a way of potentially punishing those who question you. Elon does all the moves. Reputation laundering, win-winism, 
prediction as advocacy, astroturfing, thought leadering, and recasting interests as ideals. So, yeah. <laughs> so good. So needed. Um, he, so Anand has this book called Winners Take All, which is a very easy read, very good book. And he hits all these themes, right? It's about plutocrats using their their size, their heft, and their resources to distort uh, American politics and culture in their favor. And what that creates is an oligarchy because it's a rule by the few wealthy, right? For the few wealthy. And Elon Musk, this whole like, I'm going to buy Twitter thing fits squarely within that because Twitter is a giant money suck. It's a big financial loss of a project, but it is the public sphere in a certain respect. And buying it is like buying Washington Post and New York Times and LA Times all at the same time. You know, there's so many people here. You can rig the rules however you want if it's your thing. And so you get to put your your thumb on the scale of democracy once again. And it's doing something that nobody else can do because you command resources that nobody else can command. Right. So when you're doing shit like this, it's you're you're shading away from plutocracy and into oligarchy. And that is inevitable. You cannot have plutocrats in a democracy without the democracy skewing toward oligarchy eventually, right? It has to happen. Um, and it, and it is happening. And that's why we can't have Elon Musk's in the system. Uh, but we do. So this is what we've got. Yeah. I was going to say, do you actually think like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter and this, you know, it's going to be a lot. Do you reckon that's like actually going to be legit? So I saw a bunch of the my, my follower count didn't really change in the last few days, but my the number of people that I'm following did drop. Like 20 people that I follow are no longer on Twitter, apparently, since this news. So like people are leaving. Whether that keeps going, I don't know. Like the logic that makes you leave Twitter preemptively is the same logic that suggests that like you shouldn't use a Google search engine or you shouldn't drive a car. I mean, like it's... It, it's like too extreme, you know, like you can't actually unplug from the matrix. So what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. I think I definitely recognize like this was completely maddening. I don't know how Anand can write the books he does without like throwing his pen against a wall, like every two seconds, but yeah. I guess someone's got to write it. <laughs> you know, what's funny cool. is he is, uh, he was like a shill for the, the plutocrat, class for a while like he was a journalist doing that elite thing and his crisis of conscience moment was when he got invited to be like a journalist fellow or whatever at the aspen institute and so he was genuinely among the ideas industry plutocrats and he kind of became like a traitor to the system or whatever when he wrote the winners take all book so like he has come out on a different side but he actually started making a living catering to the plutocrats which is an interesting or origin story wow what a character arc yeah. uh, <laughs> so cool so on to my second tweet uh this one's from james palmer deputy editor of uh, foreign policy his tweet reads in a meme format most developed countries we've calculated how much you will owe in tax and it's automatically taken from your paycheck the u.s government let's play a fun game 
I want you to guess a number. No, that number was wrong, so you have to pay us more money now as a penalty. No, that other number was also wrong, so we're going to give some of it back, but thank you for the interest-free loan. We spent it on missiles. So <laughs> that was a crack up. Yeah. yeah. This is so fucked up. There's not much to say here other than that, like, the American tax system is just manifestly... It, an example of oligarchy again, right? Like if you were going to design a remotely fair tax system, the government would send you a bill for what you owe and then you pay it. Or they would just like in New Zealand system, take the tax out of your pay automatically and you don't even have to file taxes, right? What they do instead is have all these intermediary software companies and accounting firms who get pay, who lobby Congress by funneling money at them and then get paid, force you to pay a bunch of money to figure out how much you really owe. Uh, and then if you're wrong, they come at you with penalties. And uh, if they can calculate how much you really owe ultimately anyway, why don't they just fucking do that? It's such a convoluted system. It's so painful to go through. Everybody hates it. And it's literally only this way because fucking TurboTax and H&R Block and these companies, they've made congressmen on the take. It's, it's literally corruption, right? Masquerading as interest group politics. So James Palmer, I guess, recognized it for what it is. I feel like every single year, like this same kind of thought comes up and you're like, oh, I guess the Americans are doing their taxes now. Like Van and Hunter, do you guys still like, are doing your taxes like american taxes or you have yeah to. american <laughs> the american tax system is is unique and our american privileges are, are uh, um you know quite special in that we get to pay taxes we have the privilege to pay taxes from uh, overseas um <laughs> but the australian system is so refreshing uh, as a change you know i get here uh i register for a tax number uh online and then the system is all automated and, you know once a year i get an email saying Here's what we estimate your taxes are. Uh, and I click log in, bing, bang, boom. It's all done. Uh, in the American system, it's all about mailing things, you know, and um, if you get the, um, if you estimate your taxes wrong, they'll send you something by snail mail and it shows up, you know, and your entire um, uh, existence, you know, uh, as a, you know, lawful tax paying adult hinges on the fact that you check your, you know, mailbox and things like that. But, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, you know, can uh, literally decide not to pay millions in taxes and uh, without, a, without a slap on the wrist. It's it's nuts. All right. We need to get to the next tweet because I'm going to, like, throw the fucking yep, mic sorry. through the window. I'm <laughs> goddamn fucking sure. So, so this last tweet of mine, my bad. Um, this one's from Good Politic Guy, a leftist YouTuber and content creator that makes unfiltered and honest takes. That might sound familiar. Mm. Um, his tweet thread starts, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, his tweet thread starts with a meme-like caption. So in this tweet, the photo in it is a news outlet showing percentage numbers for reasons for voting for Emmanuel Macron, where a whopping 91% apparently is just to block Marine Le Pen from winning. And like the other 9% is the people who genuinely think he makes a good president. So... To this photo, good politic guy captions, healthy democracy. And like, while this is pretty funny, I think he does make good points in the tweet thread further down. Uh, for example, when he says, 
a lot of people in my replies seem to think a healthy democracy is when huge portions of the electorate are perpetually forced to vote for the lesser two evils without having legitimate representation at the top for left-wing economic views. Neoliberals like Macron, Clinton, Starmer, etc. are not anti-fascist bulwarks. They support the authoritarian capitalist system that perpetuates the economic conditions necessary for the rise of far-right populists. Yes, definitely no alarming or overarching trends to be worried about. Move along, everyone. Liberals should just keep shifting right and continue disaffecting left-wing voters. This is definitely sustainable. The idea that like you're only motivated by negative partisanship, basically, is so unhealthy. It's why we can't fucking do anything once your people that you like get into office in the first place, you know? And we talked the last last episode too about how, at least in the American system, the the centrist American Democrat project ends up undermining itself. Because in part, these centrists they occupy a place in the party that's supposed to represent like labor or workers or left interests, and then they don't. And that means that large masses of people are disenfranchised. So like, what do they do? Well, they look for something else because nobody likes fucking Democrats, you know? And so you're count, you're basically counting on them to like vote for you because somebody on the far right is so obnoxious and dangerous. And that's a risky bet as we've seen, right? As 2016 proved. So it worked out in France's case this time. We'll see. I don't think it's a sustainable model. Um, yeah. So we got this armchair analysis, baby. Yeah, baby. Um, hopefully my <laughs> internet holds up. <laughs> All right. For this week's armchair analysis, we have a piece in the Washington Post by Tiziana Stella and Campbell Craig uh, called Is International Cooperation Possible? Tiziana is an historian and executive director of the Street or Street Council. Uh, I don't know that one. Uh, and Campbell Craig is a professor at Cardiff University. Uh, so this piece, um, the what do you call the um, the sub? It's not the byline, but the subtitle uh, is called "It's Time to Revisit Past Debates About How Nations Can Act Together to Address Global Problems." Very timely article, I think. Uh, especially as we're having conversations in IR departments and around the world, people are scratching their heads wondering, you know, what the hell is the UN Security Council going to do about what's going on in Russia when Russia is a member of the UNSC? So international institutions have been failing us. Russia and Ukraine crisis is clearly not the only one. Climate change and the um, global crisis, uh, as well as nuclear arms proliferation, uh, are just a couple other examples of existential threats, which international institutions are failing to uh, provide collective action in response to. Uh, but rather than provide a totally cynical take, uh, the authors argue only a far stronger international body than we saw on display in late February can meet these challenges. They're putting together an argument for sort of a return to classical ideas of international cooperation and global institutions. Um, and they note, uh, especially and controversially, that we cannot rule out working with rivals like Russia and China on this project. So this broader global project dates back to the likes of the intellectual forebears they note are Hamilton Holt, who was an editor of The Independent. He called for global disarmament in the early 20th century. 
Um, as Holt argued, global disarmament was preceded uh, by political organization, which necessarily uh, comes first to sort of get the institutions in place to then enact, based on shared trust, something like global disarmament. And so there's this powerful lobby for U.S. support to um, advocate international federation uh, around the time of uh, World War II and after Pearl Harbor especially, including prominent supporters within U.S. government, such as uh, future Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. However, as the piece notes, international cooperation after World War II and during the early days of the Cold War failed because the stakes of continuing as usual were not existential. So actually, uh, the piece notes, interestingly, that it was Joseph Stalin who insisted on veto power on the UN Security Council. And what this gets back to, you know, I note Russia's presence on the UN Security Council. The authors are arguing that today's great power divisions are actually not insurmountable, but we're working with the same international institutions that date back to the end of World War II. Um, so honestly, I think the piece is a bit pie in the sky. I mean, uh, you know, I, I work in the Headley Bowl building. Uh, Headley Bull, of course, wrote the anarchical society, you know, and is very much in this intellectual tradition of uh, global government and global governance. Uh, great notion in theory, uh, but very distant in practice. Um, Van, I'm sure you have many more thoughts on this, and I look forward to hearing uh, what others have to say on this. Yeah, the value of the piece was when I saw I saw um, one of the authors of it tweeted out. And their comment was basically, you know, the idea of a world organization that could in, sort of impose peace and disarmament or support peace and disarmament, it it fell out of our imagination and our policy toolkit a long time ago. And there's no reason why it should not be in the discourse, right? There's no reason why it shouldn't be a serious focal point for discussion, given that we have massive hyper object level intractable existential problems that can only be resolved by some kind of mechanism like that. And so, and we're obviously shitting the bed with the things that exist as they are. So why not, bro? And to the extent that that's the sort of function of the piece, I like, I agree with it. And in fact, this is part of that peace intellectual tradition, the peace intellectual toolkit that uh, I'm not going to give up on because frankly, it's going to be part, I think my, my next book project after I get past this uh, current beast. And um, it's, but it's because it's needed and peace is nonpartisan, I, I think is the core message. And that's what they point to. There was a time when truly the idea of peace, the idea of a global institution, the idea of global order setting, global order making, and disarmament were not partisan issues. Who, who but militarists would oppose these things, you know, in principle? And if you can agree to it in principle, it's only a matter of like, how do you get there? Well, we're never going to get there if we don't debate it and put effort into it, right? And there was like the virtue of the peace intellectual toolkit is that it was looking at ways of getting realistically to disarmament. There were lots of proposals. There was a tendency, there was a sort of prerequisite of like, you do need some sort of organization or regime in place prior to full disarmament happening. But there were all kinds of ideas about like, 
how you sequence things specifically. How gradually do you do it? How much do you have to dip into that toolkit of unilateral restraint in order to jumpstart and catalyze processes that just look wildly different than the, the logics of security that we're conforming to today? So like, that's what we need to recover, right? The idea that this, that stuff like peace should be a, an object only of the left seems fucking nutty. And that's, but that's where we are. Like, that's how things have sorted. It shouldn't be though, you know? Um, so I loved the piece because it's gesturing at all these things and it's trying to reassert this, like the mode of global governance in a real way, not in like, you know, wandering neoliberalism way into our imagination again. And that's what's needed. The lack of realism in it or like small R realism I agree it's like not super realistic and in particular in the space of an op-ed it's like where's this going what do you, you know what are we doing here this is not serious but uh, i think the idea that it should not be in the conversation is wrong and so now maybe we can start having that conversation again i don't know yeah the dilemma is that of the, the prisoner's dilemma right who's the first mover and you know to go back to um the tragedy of great power politics and the sort of negative side of realism i think you know, the realists and I guess cynics, not that they're uh, synonymous, would say this is never going to happen as long as nation states see their own personal security or uh, individual security as uh, paramount. And I'm also thinking of your conversation with Mark Beeson a couple of weeks ago, yeah. uh, which sadly, I think, had some, um, you know, uh, frustrations that really underpin the project, because I think he, he probably sees things similarly in that, you know, we have failed to mount a collective security response to these um, uh, meta threats uh, or, or hyper. Yeah, I mean, this is the the squandered promise of American hegemony is that we have all of this preponderant influence or I mean, it's it's starting to wane, of course, but we had this preponderant influence for so long and we used it only to try and reinforce a system that continued to rely on our preponderant influence and that's fucked up it's it's that's tragic and like some you know the realist types might say like it's like well it's inevitable right but it's like well it depends on what kind of fucking choices we make bro like the a prefigurative logic suggests that that which is very much in the the peacemaking spirit suggests that like the means by which you pursue your goals has to reflect the ends that you seek in the first place. And so it's not ends justifies the means it's means must reflect the ends. Otherwise you'll never get there. So it's, it's all about what your telos is. What is it that you're striving toward man? And are you willing to do what it might take to get there? And that's where things get gnarly because people are like, well, it doesn't look realistic. Therefore, we're not going to make any of the gestures in that direction. We're not going to take any of the costly signaling, any of the unilateral restraint moves. But it's like in this rare moment of time, we've got one preponderant power. So we actually could, if that preponderant power could conduct a more competent state graph craft, we could move in that direction. We could try and gesture the system toward greater stability and peace because we we own this shit basically and 
as we move away from that system of like America centrality, which is what's happening, it's going to become harder and harder to do this kind of thing. And so we fucked it up and it doesn't mean it's fucked up forever, but we have to be thinking about ways to use statecraft to introduce restraints in the direction of the goal that we seek. And we don't do that. We've figured out clever jujitsu fucking ways to keep buying more missiles and to take extra risks that threaten everybody's lives and everyone's existence undemocratically, of course. And that's, that's what we have to like figure out reverse engineer. Um, it's what we're up against. Right. So I don't know. I liked, I liked the piece. Definitely the start of a conversation, not the end of it by any means. Yeah, you know, you, you note the sort of unilateral restraint option here, and there, there is sort of a, a conceivable argument to be made, uh, and the authors uh, do underscore, you know, if the largest economy in the world, the United States, were to devote sufficient resources to solving global emissions that it, you know, devotes currently to the Pentagon, for instance, um, it could achieve great public goods while also achieving... Um, an advantage for itself necessarily by rewriting the norms of global governance around uh, emissions reductions. You know, that would serve collective security and also put the United States in an advantageous position by uh, redirecting flows around certain industries, green yeah. energy to its own benefit. Yeah. If, if, if America about. adopted a grand strategy of, of peace and undertook all that would that all that that would entail that's that's the world's best chance but it's very very far from the american imagination at the moment so i don't know we'll see so for ama this week we i have three questions first one is from stephen dillard but two questions do you really hate twitter and what's your take on elon musk buying twitter Yes, I do really hate Twitter. It's not a, <laughs> or, or I said on the Slack chat, actually Twitter hates me and that, that might be more precise. But uh, <laughs> the real thing is like, it makes you dumber or at least it makes me dumber. I know that produces unhealthy emotions. It makes it harder to like emotionally regulate your life if you're on it a lot. And I think it affects actually, to be totally honest, I think it affects reading comprehension, critical reading capacity because it you get accustomed to reading things in these like 280 character limits but it's not unredeemable because or it's not like completely horrible because i discover all the books almost like 95 percent of the books that i buy now i'm discovering through twitter and it's like you see an academic or somebody promoting a book they just released they they taught they create a twitter thread walking through it explaining its virtues its contributions or you see some person that you trust who's credible voice on some issue and they are promoting a book somebody else's book and it's like oh it must be legit right so i get all my books this way now it seems like and that's pretty valuable it's like a discovery resource and at my like level of whatever this game is of, of like foreign policy wonk shit, I get literal opportunities like requests to write 
some of which are paid, right? Requests to do like speaking engagements and stuff. Actual like professional opportunities flow to me through this medium, like because I was on it, right? Hunter, I would have never even known if it wasn't for this medium, you know? I've made actual friends through this whom I've met later um, in the real world. And even people who I've become friends with some people virtually who I haven't met yet, but where we're collaborating and doing shit together. And it's like, I don't know if that happens in a world without Twitter. And so like, there are things about it that keep me in it, even though I find it damaging and horrendous and mean. And for the most part, like it's a, it can be a terrible place, you know? So I don't know. That's my mixed take on Twitter. What, there was a second part to that question. Yes. Um, and what's your take on Elon Musk buying Twitter? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck Elon Musk, man. Yeah. That guy fucking sucks. And he's, there's somebody had a thread. I should have a long thread documenting all the times that Elon Musk came out against free speech in practice because his whole shtick is like, I want to buy this because I value free speech. I'm going to re-platform the Nazis and Donald Trump in the name of free speech. And so somebody was like, oh yeah, here's all the times that you were opposed to free speech, you fuckface. So that's my take. Fuckface. Nice. He's just a con man, man. This is why, like, I, I he's said... He's an asshole. Yes, he's an asshole. Also, like, he doesn't deliver on almost anything. He's 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 got Tesla to his name, but Tesla is not his sole project, A, so it's like a lot of other people putting that juice in there. And B, I've, I've heard him, like, I heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast years ago. He talks so much shit. He gets CNBC to, like, cover his fucking Hyperloop nonsense. All the stuff that he does this show many shit for never becomes real he's just selling snake oil it's he's a more successful version of trump and that's the thing that makes me really wary because he's a more successful version of trump imagine that shit i want to also say because i am south african it's like he's also south african i'm not too sure if he's also i'm not too sure if he's also kind of south african which i'm not is he popular in south africa He's probably popular among maybe the Ostrakana population, mm. but the British Irish population, maybe not. Mm. Those are the two white groups in South Africa. I can't speak for the non-white groups. And I I'm sure they don't love there. him. <laughs> no. That's my guess. No, I don't think they love him. They won't yeah. love him. Um, the second question I have is from Gabby. Do you want to ask that one? about? Oh, because this was a question I had based off one of your tweets you were mentioning. Uh, you and your son were watching Moon Knight and, you know, mm. the music was obviously like bopping. So I was like, did you have a Spotify playlist that the rest of us could like? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> no, I don't. We just looked up, you know, Arab hip hop and put that on in the car now. Yeah. Also, Moon Knight's fucking, I'm digging it in part it's because good. it's different gonna, from all I, the other Marvels. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go watch it after this. It's just yeah. like, yes, because it's Netflix. Okay, the actual third question, which I guess is from Anonymous, which is actually me, but you seem to do a lot. How do you maintain a work-life balance without getting burnt out? Or do you have any tips if you do get burnt out? I am very burned out at the moment. Mm, 
I understand. Yeah. I'm lucky that all this, the, the way the world feels now, there's a little bit, it's, it's depressing for sure. Dangerous, uncertain, right? It's hard to like look deep into the future with optimism. And that's a very different vibe from what it was when I was like trying to establish myself and make a living and everything more like I'm in a luckier place now, but it's absolutely exhausting, you know? And I feel like if you're a younger person who has not established your career yet, it's got to be 10 times more exhausting. I mean, like what the, and so, so I have a lot of sympathy for students because I'm in a very lucky position and I'm absolutely exhausted all the time. Uh, and that's just the way it is now. It's like the new normal and it sucks. Uh, so I don't have any magic tricks other than trying to, you know, get regular sleep and exercise and that kind of nonsense. Um, hacking my life, baby. So cry. Is that an option? Yeah, that is an option. Take, take time off when you can Yeah, and like, take it fully. Cause I've taken working vacations and you know, I'm off on leave technically. And then you end up writing, you know, a couple pieces or reading a stack of papers and it's just not the same. I took all of January yeah. off, albeit with a newborn, uh, but I did zero work and I watched a lot of Netflix uh, as one does with an infant. And I came back in February, actually re recharged and uh, productive. Yeah. I realized I haven't really had a break from academia or anything since maybe that tiny eight week, eight week period I finished high school and starting uni. You know, I was listening to um, Whiskey and IR Theory recently, a podcast by, uh, you know, friends of the pod. Um, Dan Nexon. Thank you. Dan Nexon and Patrick. Jackson. Thank you. Jackson. Strong um, And one of their guest speakers uh, last week was talking about an interesting experiment he was running during the pandemic where students had the option to basically uh, until the end of the semester, rework and rework a paper or project, final project to the grade they aspired to. So there was never like a final version. It was just, you know, they were able to endlessly improve it because of the nature of having a course during the pandemic and everything um, that entails uh, challenges for students uh, remote and uh, in, in course um, or in person um, sounded like a novel uh, solution. Yeah, yeah. And one thing, one of my summer courses, which I loved, um, instead of an essay, we had a creative project option, which was amazing. So I did a creative project. It's funny you say that because as Tejas might know, this, uh, I'm teaching intro to security studies right now. And the way that the, the, the course, as I got it approved years ago, requires that I basically have a final test and two essays. And that's like the structure of the course. And historically I've not been allowed to fuck with that. Like it's gotta be that, that, and it's just a question of like what the essays are about. And now that like the world's on fire, the, you know, the university is kind of like, I don't even know if I should be saying this out loud. The university is basically like, you know, flex however you need to this, you know, people aren't looking over your shoulder. Like we've got people facing existential crises. Like there's just unbelievable scale of depression. So yeah. just figure out how best to manage the course. It's not in this old strict Victorian way that it was even a few years ago. And so my, uh, yeah. 
I just turned one of the essay assignments into an option to create, incidentally, a podcast um, about this topic, about the essay topic. So it's exactly in this creative spirit. We'll see what comes out of it. Hopefully it's beneficial. Yeah. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. We're up on YouTube now, so check up the check out the clips. We've got short take versions and some full episodes, especially the interview episodes, and we'll get more up there as time goes by. So go ahead and subscribe to that. And buy me a coffee. Wait, I did that one. Fuck. Cottonbureau.com to get the merch. Search Undiplomatic. We got a bunch of new merch in there with the new logo. Thank you for your uh, contributions, listeners, about the logo. We've, we've made adjustments based on that. And so far, people seem to be liking the new logo quite a bit. So that's it. Catch you next time. What did, what did someone say? Toothpaste revolution? What's that? Toothpaste revolution. Toothpaste revolution, baby. There we go. All right. Peace.